Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin uh, from Mishkin Law in Chicago, uh, joined again today by my uh, two partners, Rob Hunt in New York, Jim Marty uh, in Colorado. Uh, we have a fun show for you guys today, uh, a rare guest, a rare day when we don't have a guest on our show, uh, which gives us a lot of time to talk about some very exciting things. Uh, we're going to dive into, in a minute here, the uh, 1989 dead run at Alpine Valley, uh, which was their final uh, three shows at that venue, and talk a little bit about Alpine and what it all meant. Uh, we have a little talk about the Fish Summer Tour from 1991 lined up, uh, being brought to us by uh, Mr. Hunt himself, who uh, participated on that tour as much as he'd like to share with us. And uh, then we have a couple of interesting uh, cannabis issues we'll get to towards the end. Uh, and all in all, it should be a very, very fun show. Uh, Jim, welcome. How are you doing? Oh, things are good. Um we're very excited here in Colorado. We're getting three Phil and Friends shows. He's playing some very small venues. He's playing Vale, where Bob Weir just played recently, and mm-hmm. then Dillon, Colorado, another mountain town, and then um, Planet Bluegrass in Lyons, Colorado, which is basically my backyard. So we're kind of excited. Wow. And, and before that, he's doing a bunch of shows. So at 81 years old, he's still rocking. That's what I love. That you can't beat that when you're in the right place at the right time, and you can see three or four or five shows just you know by spinning in any direction you want. So that's a lot of fun. That'll be good. Rob, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. Uh, hanging out here. I'm crabbing with my son this afternoon. Low tide, perfect timing. So we went after some blue crabs and green crabs, which makes for a uh, a great summer afternoon. If you're not seeing music, playing with your kid on the uh, sandbar is about as good as it gets. And will that be dinner tonight? The blues got away. You can't eat the greens. We got a bunch of greens, but the uh, the blues have paddles on them. So unless you have a net, they uh, they swim faster than you can put them in the bucket. So not tonight. We did okay. eat two blues the other night, though. Okay, wonderful. Very good. Well, that's a fun experience. Good for you. Um, so let's dive right into this 1989 Alpine. Alpine Valley, uh, for those of our listeners who don't know, uh, was the you know quote unquote Chicago stop on the tour every year, even though it was located about an hour and a half north of Chicago, that more like three hours on days when there were shows there. If you hadn't gotten up there early, the traffic jams uh, could be pretty brutal because the only access off of the freeway was on the, the two-lane uh, backwoods Wisconsin highway roads. And uh, we always used to get a kick because you would take Route G to Route D, and we thought that was very clever about uh, the way to get over to Alpine Valley. But uh, it was a beautiful place. It had a really, really nice pavilion as far as pavilions go with a good pitch so you could see it. See the stage well from anywhere with great sound, a, a wonderful hill uh, that's steeped up just enough that, you know, you could get a pretty good view of the stage even from up there. And if you just wanted a place to hang out, that was a fun place to be. Um, I'm not going to say easy in, easy out, because it really wasn't. And we had some monumental traffic jams there, but I guess that was all just part of the fun. Uh, but in 1989, the dead uh, pulled back into town for three shows and, um, it was a great time for them. Jerry was uh, back at full strength and really rocking, and uh, the Dead had a lot of uh, things set up ahead of them, uh, including some epic shows that they would play on the East Coast in October. And uh, to some degree, uh, these shows at Alpine Valley, uh, for the well-initiated and those who were paying attention, provided a little bit of a clue. Rob, can I toss it to you to pick up on that thread? Yeah, I mean, if you look at what happened in the fall of 89, you know, I think Hampton's kind of the culmination of everything that was leading up to uh, to that in 89, where you started having some of the songs brought back, including Death Don't Have No Mercy, and um, uh, We Bid You Goodnight, which happened at Alpine, that ultimately ended up with, you know, bringing back a dark star and bringing back all of it, you know, kind of together, um, both at, uh, at Hampton, then later at Brendan Byrne, and then once again in Miami. So if you think about, you know, 89, that was the year that Garcia was, you know, long hair, playing the midi, uh, all sorts of, like, really, really fun, like, foolish heart second set openers. But it was also the year they brought back just a ton of old stuff that, uh, that no one thought they'd ever see again. And uh, if you're, you know, picking the spots that happened, there's a little bit of a glimpse on, on spring tour, on that Midwestern spring tour. And then you got it again in Alpine, and then just it exploded in the fall. But, you know, the Alpine shows are really the end of the summer tour, um, you know, prior to that fall run. So, you know, in my mind, this is kind of what was setting the stage for what was to come like three months later in October. Good points, Rob. Very well spoken and said. Uh, Jim, did you have a chance to catch any shows on the uh, 89 summer tour? Yes, I did. Um, they had outgrown Red Rocks. 87 was their last shows at Red Rocks. So they did um, some Mile High Stadium shows, which 
you know, we're, we're not that good, I have to say, um, because Mile High Stadiums, our football stadium, 60,000 people, and they maybe had 20,000, you know, 15,000. So it kind of felt awkward being in a stadium that was three quarters empty. But uh, Santana opened for that uh, summer 89 show, and it was it was fun. But, um, you know, for me, it wasn't one of my best shows. Okay, well, by the time they rolled into uh, Alpine Valley, uh, they were in full form. And uh, only Mother Nature kept it from being absolutely perfect. It, uh, it's a run that's known for a lot of uh, torrential rain, uh, both Saturday and Sunday night. Uh, we got a little bit of rain on Friday night, too, as I recall. Uh, but it just was a uh, it was a wicked send off, if you will, from Mother Nature on the way out the door, um, and uh, they got just enough people up there that actually had the story is the next year. Uh, the, the, the company that ran Alpine Valley, based out of Milwaukee, decided that they would try to make friendly with Walworth County, uh, where Alpine Valley was located, and they they agreed to shift the Grateful Dead away from there and wouldn't let them play there again. They said so. The next year, the Dead wound up playing down at Tinley Park, which was a little bit of a disaster just because it's probably as great of a place as Alpine Valley was. Uh, my feeling, at least about Tinley Park, was it was just as bad. It was not a very well-designed shed. It was in a terrible location, and uh, if they could have kept playing at Alpine Valley, it would have been a lot of fun, traffic jams and all. It sounds similar to my disappointment with the Mile, Mile High show after, you know, you have these great shows at these beautiful aesthetic amphitheaters, and then, you know, they outgrew them. By the end of the 80s, the Grateful Dead were as big as baseball by that point, and they're getting huge, huge crowds, but still not quite filling stadiums, as, as happened in Denver. But So I understand your, um, your uh, complaint there with the uh, change of venue. Yeah, you know, just we had all, and, and before that, one, one uh, year, 1983, in, in the midst of all of that, they played their, their summer tour at um, uh, Hoffman Estates, um, uh, Poplar Creek, which was a beautiful venue. It was a lot smaller than Alpine Valley. It was a lot closer to where we all lived, and uh, we loved it there, but that was just one summer, and then the next year they were back up at Alpine. Uh, but this was a great run, and, and all of the shows were great. Uh, Rob, I'm assuming that you were at those shows? 89 Alpine, I was not there. The only shows I actually caught that summer tour were uh, July 7th and 8th at Giant Stadium, which were also torrential downpour nights. And if you remember, I don't know if you were at those, Larry, but... Um, those nights in Giants, they actually had to stop the show in the middle of the first set on um, one of the nights because lightning was hitting the, um, the stadium. So there was a period there where the band left the stage, and it was really similar to the show we talked about last week, where it was almost you know half a set and then another half set. But uh, the, the, the great thing, if you listen to the audience tape from that night in Giants, uh, during the uh, music never stopped on the line, balls of lightning roll along, uh, the lightning bolt hits the stadium at that exact moment, and the crowd just goes absolutely nuts. So it's, it's worth checking out. Um, but I did not do the rest of that summer tour, and um, and then when I had friends get back from Alpine, and I heard what I missed, and I heard the tapes, you know, early August, um, really, really disappointed that I didn't make the trek to the Midwest, and that was the last time for quite a while that I did not do a fair portion of summer tour. Where I'm like, you know, from here on in, uh, I'm going. But uh, but I was so beat up after two nights of Giants as a 17 year old that uh, <laughs> that was it for me that year. Right. 17-year-old, well, I have to, you know, we always have to keep that in mind when we're talking about it because at that stage I was, uh, oh boy, I was pushing 30. So, you know, it was all good, but um, it, it was it was a great, great run. And, and that, that night, I think, really kicked it off in just a uh, uh, a, a tremendous way. You know, the, uh, the first set was strong, 10 songs. They really came out really rocking and rolling. Um, anytime you could push past eight songs in the first set, I felt like it was a good night for Jerry. So I was always excited about that. Um, music never stopped it was always a traditional Alpine Valley song you know the whole cornfields thing and on the drive up from Chicago you know half the way you're driving through cornfields so uh, it was very appropriate um, and that was always fun too on uh, route 51 uh, cutting over from the highway uh, to just past Lake Geneva to where you would turn north to head up to Alpine Valley uh, along that road there were all sorts of sorts of farm stands set up and the ones that always drew the biggest crowds were the ones that were selling mushrooms and I always got a chuckle out of it because I assumed if they were selling mushrooms that they were perfectly legal regular mushrooms but there must be a lot of deadheads figuring if they're on the way to Alpine Valley that maybe they were the other kind so it might have been you know interesting to be a fly on the wall watching those cultures uh, bump into one another um, but I digress uh, this show was really great that second set China Rider playing Uncle John standing on the moon 
that's, you know, five strong tunes before you even get to drums in space. And then they came out of the space and, uh, you know, despite it, you know, being 89 and much farther down the road where it was very typical to see space two songs in an encore, uh, they gave us the wheel and give me some loving and going down the road and not fade. And then, you know, turn the whole house upside down with We Bid You Good Night. And it was the first time I had ever really seen, you know, uh, uh, an acapella performance of something. I had never seen the song before. I had never seen uh, Fish do any of their acapella tunes. And I thought it was just great that they went up there and they belted it out and the crowd sang right along with them. It was a, it was a great moment. Yeah, obviously, I think the um, the archivists agree because they ended up making you know that night into downhill from here, which was uh, one of the video series of, of you know the best Grateful Dead shows of that era. Um, and the one thing I'll say about "We Bid You Good Night" is they've been teasing it for quite a while during "Going Down the Road." If you listen to like you know the end of "Going Down the Road," feeling bad in the late '80s, early '90s, the uh, the ending part of it is always a breakdown that's basically the exact same portion of "We Bid You Good Night." And there's a couple times they even started playing just that riff. Um, going into other encores during that period, we were like, are they going to do it? Are they not going to do it? So they'd play the We Bid You Good Night on instruments, wouldn't actually ever sing it. Right, which was, you know, a very popular thing that they used to do. So, you know, they would tease lots of tunes without playing them. You know, and, and how many times were we at a show where we swore to God that in the middle of whatever jam they were in, they were just, they were one note away from spinning into Dark Star and only to have them spin in a completely different direction. You know, and then you turn to somebody. Did you hear that? Or was it just me? No, no, I heard it too. That, you know, they're screwing with us. They're they're going this way instead of going that way. Um, but this is, you know, the way the song starts. You know, even in its acapella, they just walk up and just start singing. And I think the crowd. You can tell by the reaction of the crowd that they really appreciate it. Uh, it was great. Uh, Dan, do we have a clip of that tune today for us to listen to? Lay down, my dear brothers. Lay down. I want to lay my head upon your Savior's breast. I love you, oh, but Jesus loves you the best. And I bid you good night, good night, good night. I was just going to say, Jerry loved those old gospel songs. I've been listening to some Jerry Garcia, My Barn, and it's amazing how many of those he does. Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, um, Walking to the Promised Land. Yeah. Lucky Old Son. Lucky Old Son, yeah. So um, I'm not surprised that they finally did break that one out for us. And what I love about it is, you know, people have to remember that, you know, we're, we're picking this up from a, an official recording. So, you know, this is, not a, this is not an audience tape. So when you hear the crowd screaming in the background, that's the crowd screaming loud enough to be heard over the singer singing into the microphone. And, you know, from the audience perspective, it was very loud indeed, uh, which was, you know, the typical type of reaction you would get when the dead would break out. Something like that, that if for no other reason, I think just evokes uh, images of late 60s, early 70s dead, uh, when uh, We Bid You Good Night would be very standard fare for them and, you know, part of the whole music scene they were creating at the time. You know, I think you just nailed it too, because like for me, the litmus test of how like loud the crowd was at any given show is if you can actually hear the crowd on a soundboard where it you know, overpowers anything they're doing to try to mute out the crowd and it's still there. Uh, there's very few times where on a soundboard you can actually hear the crowd still that loud. And obviously, I think, I think Hampton, uh, what is it, 10-8-89 is probably the most obvious example, or 10-16-89 from Brendan Byrne being the other ones where it's just, you know, when they heard the Dark Star notes, it was just so unbelievably loud. Or the 1988 ripple from, um, from Cap Center. You know, those are the ones I always think of that when, when those got broken out, it didn't matter how much they were trying to delt down at the soundboard. Like, there's no way that uh, audience noise wasn't getting through. It's true, yep, and the whole history of them. Jim, uh, did you ever have a chance to hear them play that tune? Not live, no, but I know what uh, Rob is talking about. I called it the howl. Oh, yes. And at the end of a particularly good sequence or an end of a set, uh, the audience would actually just howl. And I would say, oh, they got the howl tonight. That's great. That's, I, that, didn't, happen, didn't happen every show, but... No, you're right, it, but that's very descriptive. They would just whip the crowd into enough of a frenzy that, you know, they drown out the band for a minute or two. That's very, that's very accurate. That's true. So, Those were the good nights. So I, I did get a bunch of them. I think I saw either four or five Bid You Good Nights, which is um, relatively decent for, you know, kind of how few times they played it uh, from 89 to 95. That is, that is good to see it. You know, that's, that's just, you know, a good example for all you kids out there who want to know how to hear the tunes. Go on tour. Speaking of, of 89, 
that was the year they, they did the follow-up to uh, In the Dark, which, of course, had that, the huge, I don't think it made number one, but top ten hit, Touch of Grey. And then the album that uh, followed that, that's where Standing on the Moon came from and Foolish Heart. Built to Last. Built to, Built to Last, which turned out to be the last studio Grateful Dead album. Correct. I believe that's correct. So, yeah, 89, they were still riding the wave of the popularity of uh, Touch of Grey. You know, back in 87 and 88, you could barely turn on an FM radio without hearing Touch of Grey. And unfortunately, that's why they couldn't play at places like Alpine Valley anymore. I think that they said that, uh, I read that for the the 89 Alpine shows, on the first night, they had 60,000 people who showed up. Uh, the place at best held maybe 35, 36,000, maybe 37,000 people. So it was almost double the capacity of people who showed up, most without tickets. But they would get there early and take up all the parking spots in the lot. So the lots would be full and the people who showed up with their tickets later to go to the show wouldn't. So the farmers who lived across the street or half a mile down did very well for themselves renting out their front piece of their property to let people park on their lawns. Uh, but then it you know, turned into a little bit of a hike. Not a terrible hike, but, you know, enough of a hike. And uh, I think at that point they just said, you know, that, that was the last year there, I think, 89. It was. Uh, last, camp, last camping and vending in the lot. They shut it down after that, and that was when they started going through the parking lot and, you know, taking people's tents down. And it became relatively combative between Grateful Dead security and Grateful Dead team uh, and the fan base. But it was, you know, basically over popularity. And venues were like, look, we're not going to have you back if you guys, you know, keep this up. We can't host you anymore. We can't accommodate. What was Deer Creek's last year? Well, they played 95 uh, at Deer Creek. So, you know, there was camping really close to Deer Creek, oh. but technically in the parking lot, you weren't meant to camp. There was a couple of places that still allowed for it, like Buckeye had an adjoining campground where you could basically camp, right. um, land over at the Cap Center. You could actually walk to a campground from there as well. So there were venues that had camping that were, like, close enough that you could just walk right through the, uh, the lot to get to them. But technically, you couldn't, you know, camp anymore in the lot and technically, you weren't supposed to vend in the lot anymore. And once they realized that was untenable is when everything sort of got sequestered into one area where they said, all right, we're going to open up gates early, and you guys can all set up, you know, Shakedown Street. And, uh, and that was basically just, we're going to keep you in, in one contained area, but we don't want vending in the rest of the, uh, the parking lot. So, yeah, they had to move on. And um, it's too bad because Alpine was great. And, you know, the early years when, when everybody just set up their camp and their tents everywhere, and, uh, you know, it was a whole scene all day and all night. It was, you know, you could be on the golf course. You could be over in the main parking lot. And then, of course, years later, uh, when uh, they had the um, uh, Dead Family Reunion there for the Terrapin Family Reunion in 2002. And then after that, when Phil and Friends would play there or whatever variation of the Dead, the other ones were whoever was floating around at the moment. You know, I had friends who at that point had figured out the whole system and were smart enough to get rooms at the Alpine Valley Inn. So, you know, they would come in, they'd pull right in, they'd have always have reserved parking down at the end, they'd have a room there for the whole weekend, and you'd literally walk out your door and be like right where the band is walking up the hill, uh, except instead of going up the stairs and onto the stage, you just walk up to your own little private entrance, flash your tickets, and they let you right in. Uh, it was the greatest idea in the world. Uh, I just wasn't smart enough to figure it out until it was basically too late to take advantage of it. So, at any rate, Alpine Valley will be missed. Uh, the 89 shows were a great way to say goodbye. But let's pivot for a minute because uh, even as, you know, the dead were becoming so popular by that point that they were making themselves, you know, having to having to leave these nice small venues, Fish was really just coming on the scene. And for Fish, you know, the opportunity to play at a venue like Alpine Valley, you know, say back in the summer of 91, uh, would have probably been pretty big. Now, I have to confess that as much as I like Fish and as many shows as I've seen, I probably didn't see my first show until... Uh, 2000 and something um so i can't speak at all to this early period uh and i know it even predates jim a little bit but luckily this is where uh where rob who maybe jumped on the bandwagon with the dead a couple of years late certainly was way ahead of the pack on the fish bandwagon and uh tell us about that 91 summer tour uh rob and what it was all about thanks larry i mean look First of all, so hard for me to believe that that is now 30 years ago. The uh, that summer tour was a 14-night run that kicked off on July 11th, so it kicked off you know yesterday um, in in 30 years ago. And what made that tour so unbelievably special and the one you know if you look talk to fish kids today that you know sort of look back on Primal Fish the way we look back on Primal Dead and go ah oh, I wish I was there for that. 
is that was the tour that the Giant Country Horns played all 14 nights with those guys. So not only was it Fish, but it was uh, Dave the Truth Grippo, uh, Russell Remington, and, um, and Carl Gears Gearsheart playing horns um, behind those guys. So the, some of the funkiest versions of like Susie Greenberg and you know, super funky versions of a lot of other songs where the horns just became such an integral part of the music. So, you know, venue size, like it's so hard to believe now that we know, you know what Fish has become. That tour kicked off in Battery Park in Burlington, Vermont, which was their hometown. Battery Park was, you know, essentially a free show um, just out there overlooking Lake Champlain before they went on, like, you know, a run kind of through the Northeast. That included Keene, New Hampshire, uh, the Berkshire Performing Arts Center at Lenox, Mass., uh, Townsend Family Park, which is, I'll tell you about that venue in a minute, um, the Academy in New York City, the Hampton Casino Ballroom in Hampton, New Hampshire, the Somerville Theater in Massachusetts, Two Nights at Arrowhead Ranch, which was absolutely legendary, and Fish just did their dinner and a movie. Their final dinner and a movie was, was from those nights. And then a couple indoor venues down in uh, D.C. at the Bayou, then Tracks in Charlottesville, the Cat's Cradle in Chapel Hill, the Georgia Theater, and then the Variety Playhouse in Atlanta. So it basically was Vermont all the way down to Georgia from July 11th to July 27th. Um, starting off outdoors and then, you know, kind of moving indoors. But the indoor venues were, you know, tracks hold 600 people, 700 people. Same with Cat's Cradle. Same thing, you know, the Somerville Theater in Somerville, Mass. was, you know, six or 700 people. And at the time, all we could think about is kids like the first, like, I would say there's maybe 40 of us on Fish Tour, um, you know, that were seriously on Fish Tour. We all knew each other. And no, none of us could believe that they were playing venues that were, you know, 800 people. Like, wow, they've made it. You know, Fish is huge. And then there, the Arrowhead Ranch show um, was a monster. And then at the end of the summer, they did Amy's farm, which is the other like legendary show that year. So a super, super cool time, uh, to be seeing fish, super cool time to do stuff. And I got lucky enough that I got hired to work at Arrowhead ranch. Um, that first night, actually, you know, I guess earlier in the summer, there'd been a couple other shows. I met a couple guys that, um, were putting the thing on. And one of them was Corn Capshaw that now, you know, runs uh, Dave Matthews band and is fish's manager. But he came up from Charlottesville. He owned the, uh, the venue called Tracks, And, you know, he was helping out up at Arrowhead Ranch. But Arrowhead Ranch was being put on by David Graham, who's Bill Graham's son, when he had a company called Music Unlimited. So it was uh, David Graham and it was um, uh, another David. And, you know, the bands that played that summer were Blues Travelers, Spin Doctors, um, Fish, uh, you know, a handful of other, you know, sort of really well-known um, mid-Atlantic and northeastern bands. So the rest of the summer when I wasn't on fish tour, I got to go out every weekend to Arrowhead and put on shows. Uh, and I got to run the security for Arrowhead uh, backstage. I got to run sort of like the late night security at the, uh, the late night venue, which is a bar there. And, you know, during the week I was out running around upstate New York posting flyers on, um, on telephone poles. So if someone says, you know, what was your first, you know, true music industry gig? It was uh, working, working for fish at Arrowhead was, you know, kind of the first one. And we've got some great pictures, you know, from back in those days of, you know, a 1971 bus that we have as will call, like a sort of the late night will call, where if you showed up and, you know, the window was closed, we were the backup and there'd be, you know, five or six of us hanging out there playing Frisbee and Hacky Sack. That would be like, yeah, man, we got, you know, where's your, here's the clipboard, where's your name? And, uh, you know, just a, a great time to, uh, to be working in music and really, really too bad that that Arrowhead Ranch didn't make it as a venue, you know, years to follow, but, you know, really special place. Where was that located, Rob? It was in the Catskills. It was upstate New York, maybe like half an hour from um, from Monticello, New York, very close to Woodstock and Saugerties. Um, not far from the original Woodstock venue gym. So, you know, it was kind of a, this beautiful farm that had, uh, on one side of it had like a little motel-looking place that had maybe like eight rooms in it. It had a little downstairs like basement bar, which is where they put like a lot of late-night shows, which, you know, inevitably all the musicians that played during the day would uh, would come in there and plug in. And then uh, I was camping on the other side of the street. They had like, you know, an SL100 stage set up. So basically like one of those, you know, flatbed trailer stages. And, uh, and it played out into like an open field with, you know, the Catskill Mountains as your backdrop. So just, you know, really, really cool spot to, uh, to, to spend weekends. Uh, and I'm trying to think of, you know, kind of what I'd compare it to. But you know, not, not too many spots in the West that you would know that would be a good comp. Uh, the other place on that tour that was just amazing was the uh, the Townsend Family Park in Townsend, Vermont, which is, as the name says, you know, it's a local town park in Townsend, tiny little town of like 2,000 people, and it had a river that ran through the venue 
with a little bridge that went over the river where literally like, you know, half the, half the audience was naked, you know, out playing in the river. Um, you know, there was kegs inside the venue. There was nitrous tanks inside the venue. It was literally anything goes, bring your dogs, bring your friends, bring your kids, bring, you know, your substances, you know, get naked. And uh, it, it would be like going to see a show on like, you know, uh, French's camp on, on the Yale River. You know, it's probably the best description, but in Vermont instead of in Northern California. So I'd gone the year before to Townsend when they played there in June. It was uh, an amazing time. I brought a whole bunch of friends. You know, we partied like, you know, 10 of us went up there. And the next year, I think like 20 of us went up. And, uh, and you know. How much, uh, how much of a following did Fish have at that time? Did they, I mean, they didn't. They had a bunch of diehards from Burlington. But as far as who was going on tour, as I said, there was maybe 40 of us. And we all, you know, we all knew each other. So it was a, a really, really small group. You know, the group that I, you know, ran around with, one of them ended up dating John Fishman for a couple of years. And. You know, every night, you know, at the Somerville Theater Show, the, the party was at my buddy's house afterwards and the whole band was there. You know, the, uh, the Townsend Family Park, after the show was over, we were all hanging out partying. Like, it was, they are super accessible as a band back then. And, um, you know, there was a, I mean, they'd just come out with the Don of the Shiv, which is the, uh, the newsletter that Fish puts out. So they're really trying to build a fan base and really trying to, um, to, to cultivate people away from, you know, uh, Burlington. That was when Eric Hunter just took over as their manager. I mean, this is this is early days of you know like Junta just come out as an album. You know, like they're a brand new band, and uh, and for them to do something like this. And how how big were the crowds at Townsend? The, the crowd was, I mean, basically like if you had a ticket, great. If you didn't have a ticket, great. So the, the crowd at Townsend was probably eight hundred people, maybe a little less. Um, you know, Amy's Farm at the end of the summer was was probably about that, but that was you know more of like an invite only, but it just turned into a free for all. Uh, and then the, um, the, the show at Arrowhead, both nights of Arrowhead were, you know, over a thousand people because they weren't the only band on the bill. I think like that weekend, it might've, you know, I know the spin doctors were on the bill, but Richie Havens might've been on the bill as well. There was a handful of other bands. Like, you know, I think the Academy might've been on the bill. So there was, you know, probably five or six bands that played that weekend. And the big thing on the first night was that they played the, uh, the music video for Esther, uh, on a big screen late night. So there was like all sorts of other programming that went along with Arrowhead. So that was by far the you know the biggest crowd they played that entire summer, and then the rest of the crowds on the indoor venues were it was ticketed. You know, as I said, the those those venues are you know six to eight hundred people, and that was you know all of us were blown away like oh my god, Fish is playing real rooms. This isn't you know like you know six months earlier they were playing Wetlands in New York, which held like two fifty three hundred. You know, this is they hadn't even hit the point where they're playing like the Porchester Capitol Theater, and, and much less you know like the Boston Garden for New Year's, which happened literally within like twelve months or eighteen months after that. Where like this is this was at that moment where you knew like something electric was in the air that this band was about to be absolutely freaking massive. It just hadn't happened yet, but it was on the cusp. Like they they just did the Colorado runs and those Colorado shows were only like you know a hundred people. They were playing like Fly Me to the Moon and Telluride. So it's uh you know their their fan base around New England during that time was like the boarding school crowd and it was like the college crowd was just absolutely exploding and um, you know. It, it was all word of mouth. There was, you know, it's just trading tapes. And, you know, have you heard about this band? And obviously they, they've been doing that in Burlington for three or four years at that point, you know, from like 85 to like 89, they'd, uh, they'd start building the, the fan base at Nectar's and some other venues, but they hadn't hit an inflection point yet. In 91, if you were to say, you know, sort of name a time where fish just absolutely exploded in popularity, it was that summer tour. Yeah. When was Telluride? March of 1990, I think, where fishes or Trey's yelling to Eric the Viking in the audience. If you if you heard those tapes, and they played the Inferno and Steamboat during that same run, and they played I think three or four other nights. They might have played the Fox. I mean, like as Don uh, Don Strasberg, the first time he put on fish was in 1990 on that run. It was before he owned the Fox. Yeah, the stories I heard about. Tell you right, I think Trey told it one time on Fish Radio that uh, they barely had gas money to get home from Telluride, and they barely had money to buy groceries, and they just drove themselves home from Telluride on fumes. I mean, I believe it. I think there's some great pictures of those guys loading gear across Main Street in Telluride, you know, getting to the Fly Me to the Moon. But uh, you know, the, the first big fan base outside of New England they, that they cultivated, much like much like Widespread Panic, you know, the first real fan base outside of Atlanta. Was, was Colorado, where you just kind of have that jam band, jam band vibe and a lot of East Coast kids that, you know, migrated out to go to Boulder or go to, uh, to DU. So there's a lot of word of mouth of like, hey, you guys see this band that just played my school last year and, you know, they're amazing. But, uh, but that was, you know, that was when they were trying to build an audience outside of their core market, which at that time really consisted of, you know, 
Boston to uh, to Burlington, and that was the corridor for him. Yeah, the stories I heard about that Boston Gar- New Year's Boston Garden show was they basically that was when they really started putting on the entire event themselves with their own team. Does that sound right? Yeah, it does. You know, those guys were super self-sufficient. They kept a really small crew of very close people. And, you know, in 1991, I mean, this to give you an idea of kind of how serious I was about the band back then, they actually put out a, um, an ad in the Donovan Shiv to, uh, to be a roadie for the band, which um, ended up going to, um, uh, goodness, spacing his name right now, uh, who ended up staying with the band for, for the next 20-something years and ended up being their touring manager for a long time. But, you know, it was like, hey, you know, interested in humping gear and, you know, helping the band out. And I applied for that job and actually got like a callback on it um, when I was working at, you know, a small music company down in, in um, North Carolina that fall, which I got from the from the Arrowhead Ranch gig. I ended up not going back to my sophomore year of college because I got a job working uh, in music in um, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So I was going to the Cat's Cradle all the time and, you know, trying to, to find new bands to uh, to work with down there before I went back to college. Um but at the time, you know, Fish's Fish's crew consisted of like maybe like eight people, you know, outside of the band, and that included ticketing, that included you know dry goods and, and merch. It was uh, you know next to nobody that made up that family. And now we're gonna have three ni- three nights, thirty thousand a night, ninety thousand people, and um, everyone tells me it's gonna be a tough ticket to get at Dick's here for Labor Day weekend. It is. Well, that's what happens when a band grows up, you know. Even the, even fish has gotten too big for places now, so, you know, they, they, they suffer from the same fate. And by the way, Brad Sands is who I was thinking of. It was when Brad got his job. So, you know, Brad's no longer with the band, but he's gone on to do all sorts of other cool things. He was sort of the person behind getting the guys together for Oysterhead. Uh, he's working with the police for quite a while after Fish. So but Fish was his stepping stone, and he took that job in the fall of 91. That's exciting stuff, and it's an exciting time, Rob, and I think you're right to, you know, to some degree to compare it to Primal Dead. Uh, you know, early on in the band's existence, they were just really trying to feel their way out and decide where they were as a band, and, um, you know, to, have, to got, and I've gone back and listened to a lot of it now that I've, I've started listening to them more and seen them in concert, um, and, you know, it, it, part of it is I, there's, a, there's a sense of, while I was right there at that time, that would have been something I could have jumped on the bus for. But, you know, the truth of the matter is that by at that point, I was I was pushing 15 years of uh, pretty steady uh, uh, Grateful Dead shows and traveling and sacrificing family and friends and uh, had, had a brand new baby and the idea of diving into a, a whole new uh, jam band and just didn't have the time or the energy for it, which is unfortunate, but I've caught up and seen them plenty now. And, uh, you know, it's nice to have people like you around who can tell us uh, what it was like back in the day. So, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're the fish's generation's version of, you know, Steve Parrish or whoever you want to be. Yeah, and it's really funny because during that time, there's, you know, half of me going, do I, would I rather go see the Grateful Dead tonight or I'd rather see a really small, tight, intimate fish show? And uh, in 1990, before MSG, uh, Fish actually played a night at the Wetlands the, the night off in between, I think, the Philly shows and the Garden shows, which was you know amazing. So you, there was no night off for anyone that was in the know. You went and saw Fish that night. And then one of those nights at the Garden, I ended up not going to see the Grateful Dead and ended up driving up to, to Trinity College and seeing Fish up at Trinity as well. So I went like, yeah, I did the, the first two shows in Richfield, Ohio, the first you know shows with, um, with uh, Vince, and then saw the three nights in uh, Philly, then saw Fish the next night. And then I think saw two Grateful Dead nights, and then I think that Sunday I went to go see Fish play at Trinity, and then saw three more Grateful Dead nights before I took off to go to college. So that was like, you want to talk about just an insane run of music. It was just amazing. It was two Fish and like 11 Grateful Deads. Uh-huh. When did you pack? I, uh, I, I didn't. I think I moved to college with a duffel bag, sight on scene. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of uh, the stories Sandy Troy was telling us a couple weeks ago that uh, Rob's a nice connection uh, to fill in the younger fish fans on on what happened in the early days it's true it's true you know a lot of the you know fish fans who dived in early look back at that period just like we look back at you know the late 60s early 70s period of the dead and you know it's nice you know that we know people in our generation who are there and who are part of it and and got to see it all unfold and i guess you know it's just a great way of saying that there's nothing like summer tour uh the weather's beautiful the venues are awesome the bands are great the music they play is often legendary and here we are, you know, in some cases 30 or more years 
still talking about it as though it was yesterday and it feels like it was yesterday that's the that's the funny part but um you know thanks to the beauty of archive.org and all these others you can still go tap into it and and listen to it and even though it may not be quite the same as it was when you're there uh the music is the music and that doesn't change so uh you know check out 1989 alpine valley check out downhill from here it's a great video and it, it really is a fantastic uh compilation mostly of that show a few songs from some of the other nights on that run and by all means get your hands on as much early fish as you can and uh and listen to it as much as you can it's great stuff in the few minutes we have left let's uh let's shift over to the other side of the uh the coin for us here on the marijuana side guys it's kind of funny because here we are in 2021 and you know marijuana is legal in so many places and even though many of us maybe always kind of took it for granted to some degree, the rest of the world, I think, is finally beginning to catch up and say, you know, it looks like marijuana is here to stay regardless of how you feel about it. And with that implies kind of an understanding that this means adults are going to use it and it's, it's available for all adults to use whenever and however they want. You know, just like you might argue alcohol or caffeine or uh, anything else like that, tobacco, and yet here we have the fascinating case of Shakri Richardson, who is not going to be able to compete in the Olympics because she tested positive for smoking marijuana and admitted that she smoked marijuana in a state where it was legal for her to possess and smoke the marijuana. And the reason why was because she was mourning the loss of a, it was either a family member or a close friend. I don't remember exactly what. And she found that rather than going out and having a few drinks, the marijuana was much more helpful to her helped her relax more and, and, you know, kind of maintain. And yet then, of course, we all know that it can stay in your body a little longer than you would like. And it showed up. And for that reason, uh, after a lifetime of training, she's out of the Olympics. Rob, what are your thoughts on that? Hey, look, it's rare that I really soapbox an issue. Um, yeah, I try to try to do the best I can to be um, an even broker and understand that there's people that are still anti-cannabis. But it's as simple as this. Let her run. You know, there, there's no other way to look at it. Let this woman run. She's trained her entire life. It's not a performing-enhancing uh, drug. There's no like, anti-doping policy that would ever like, say that the cannabis is going to improve your performance. She was mourning the loss of her mother. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a close friend. It was right after she heard that her mother had passed away. This is a, a, an inspiration in every other way to every single kid out there who's trained her entire life to be the absolute best at what she does who is you know, very likely going to bring a gold medal home for the United States, and you're going to keep her off the world stage for smoking cannabis where it's legal in the state she does it, something has got to change. Because this is, it's a miscarriage of justice at every single possible level that this woman's not able to compete. And so anyone that has you know, any influence or can call anyone, you know, by all means do. I think at this point it's, it's too late. She's already you know, come out and said, I don't think there's any chance I get to run the Olympics. Anyone that's paying attention and anyone's, you know, sort of looking at what the Biden administration uh, response to this was, you know, Joe's response was very, very well worded of, you know, the rules are the rules and those are the rules, so you have to follow them, but maybe it's time we re-examine the rules. Okay, that's great, but the Olympics are on July 23rd, right? And for this woman not to be able to get up there and, and bring it home for us, I, it, there's, there's no other way to say it outside of please let that woman run, the, run a race. Now, do you think that decision's final? It seems like it is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the point that she seems to have accepted her uh, her fate. You know, there's a lot of talk about the same day she should just have her own 100-meter race just to prove to the world, had I been there, I won. By the way, every other athlete out there, if they're going to take home a gold, they don't want to take home a tainted gold. They don't want one where they say, I would have been second, but for Shikari Richardson not competing. You know, they want to know they could win on an even playing field and, and, and have taken it home themselves. It's not like she was, you know, using the human growth hormone. You know, it's a one time uses canvas to mourn the, the death of her mother and then a month later doesn't get to run a race. Everyone out there that, that takes gold, silver, or bronze is knowing they're doing so without having, you know, the true field actually running. And, then, and that's, you know, nobody wins there. You know, it, 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 Jim, to answer your question, the, uh, there was a big article the other day, yesterday or the day before, that the U.S. Olympic Committee submitted its formal list of participants and she is not on the list to participate in, in the relay race that in, in which she runs. Uh, so she's out. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that there's very much that she could do, even if she wanted to do anything. Um, but it, it's very unfortunate because we mentioned a number of others on the way in. They're not going to disqualify you if you drink coffee. 
They're not going to disqualify you if you go out and have a drink of alcohol. They're not going to disqualify you if you smoke cigarettes. But if you smoke marijuana, which is safer than any of those other three, and probably less performance enhancing than any of those other three, if there's any performance enhancing value at all, and in all fairness, I have heard that uh, ultra athletes, triathletes, marathon runners, that for them it might give a slight advantage in the sense that it helps their mind focus better when they're out in the midst of a 26-mile or 100-mile run or bike ride or whatever they're doing, uh, but that's obviously not the case here. And uh, I think you're Rob, right, Rob. Nobody has ever suggested uh, that marijuana will make anybody faster, uh, more explosive out of the blocks, have a stronger kick, uh, or anything like that. And uh, for people who have uh, you know, smoked marijuana and then gone out and tried to perform, uh, for most people, I think, you know, the, the result is, wow, this isn't, you know, if I, if I really want to be at peak performance, maybe smoking marijuana right before I go perform isn't the best way to do it. And uh, in this instance, she did something that an overwhelming majority of Americans believe to be legal and normal and, and not worthy of punishment on any level, except that the uh, World Olympic Committee and the U.S. Olympic Committee see it differently. And that's really the tragedy here. Like you say, a woman who has trained her whole life uh, for engaging in perfectly legal activity is now going to be uh, is now going to lose the chance to live her lifelong dream and represent her country and she's not the only one that loses we all lose all of us who are fans of the USA all of us who are fans of track and field all of us who are fans of the best competing against the best we're all deprived of that opportunity and while it's easy to point the finger at her and say hey the rules are the rules and you should have known the rules and there is, on a certain level, I suppose, a, 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 a truism to that. But the problem with that is, is that when those rules begin to encroach on uh, conduct and activities that all the rest of us just take for granted now, and uh, nobody's going to accuse me of being performance enhancing if I smoke a joint before I walk into a courtroom. You know, nobody's going to think the same of Jim if he gets stoned before he walks into an audit. In fact, in any of those instances, it would probably be seen as professionally unprofessional or even unethical and uh you know and, and that kind of a thing but but certainly not performance enhancing by any sense of the word and um it, it's just disappointing to see uh that at the end of the day uh, we do get this result that that, that just feels wrong yeah and looking as a point a, a point of clarification larry that's um the relay race was her second event she was going to be the, the anchor of the relay but primarily she's a 100 meter dash you know sprinter and she won the u.s trials you know she ran up 10.86 in the uh, in the trials and was you know clearly the the leader of not just you know who would be running for us for the hundred meter dash which is a pretty you know coveted title but she also would have been the anchor runner for the relay race and then you know to add to what you're saying if you look back in in history you know Ross Ribagliotti who was a, a snowboarder um, a snowboard racer back in 1998 at the um, the Vancouver Games you know he tested positive and uh, after winning the gold medal. And, you know, was stripped of the gold medal. And I'm not sure if it ever got reinstated. I have to look into it. And, you know, he got all, all obviously all the jokes, you know, instead of Rebagliati, he started calling him Nickel Bagliati. Um, but, you know, and, and now Ross has his own cannabis brand in Canada and has, you know, done very well sort of capitalizing, you know, off the reputation he had. But, you know, that, that's different. Snowboards kind of have the reputation where, like, smoking weed is cool. Sprinters don't get that same latitude. But you look at a ski racer like Bodie Miller, who went out there and talked about being absolutely hammered drunk, you know, going into some races that he won. And I don't understand how you can be a, you know, drink where it's not, you know, performance enhancing and still be able to maintain your eligibility. But you can't do that as a, um, as a professional athlete on U.S. track and field. I mean, if you look at like the 1970s for the NBA players, you know, those guys played high all the time. And, and now the NBA, I think, doesn't even test for cannabis as a, as a result of so many of their players, you know, using cannabis. So the whole thing is is such a um, is, is such a uh, hypocrisy. Don't forget, this is the same. You know, I mean, Olympic level athletes, they were the same ones who persecuted uh, Michael Phelps, who you know, after he won so many gold medals for the U.S. God forbid, you know, happened to be in a picture with a bong. Uh, you know, the, the, not even around performance at the time. But we, especially on that level, still have a very very strong negative act reaction official negative reaction against any kind of a drug and especially a drug like marijuana I think which is still perceived as being illegal immoral improper and now apparently performance enhancing as well but like you say uh, most of the other professional leagues have made accommodations for the fact that it is legal and it is common 
and uh, that it's something that athletes enjoy and it helps them relax it helps them recover and you know hopefully the, you know the, at the end of the day Shakari will serve at least at a minimum as uh, you know a call to action and a call to arms for people to step up and say uh, this isn't the right way to do it and at the end of the day we you know we have to be more meaningful of the society societal times in which we live and what people do and don't accept in our society and somebody should never be punished for engaging in otherwise lawful activity. Yeah, I look at this the same way I look at Ricky Williams, who gave up his NFL career over cannabis and has been a great advocate for cannabis since then. I hope that Richardson uses this to her advantage, that if she loses the opportunity to compete, that she at least is a spokesperson to go around the world and say, look, I am a poster child of, you know, that you can absolutely perform at the highest possible levels in whatever it is you do professionally, even with cannabis use. So get rid of the old stereotypes, get rid of whatever you've been told about laziness. There's no way in the world you can call me lazy if I can do what I've done. So it's, uh, you know, if nothing else, I hope she has the same sort of star power that, you know, Colin Kaepernick does or that uh, some of the other people have that have decided to turn a tragedy into an advocacy situation in favor of educating other people um, based on her experience. I agree. I agree. We will see what happens. And uh, it is very unfortunate with the Olympics just around the corner. Um, Touching on something else really quick, Jim, uh, can you give us an update on what you're hearing about uh, uh, what's going on down in Missouri with their cannabis market right now? Yeah, I've been doing some work in Missouri with some clients. Um, When they awarded the uh, licenses and they uh, started their program for medical. They're still not adult use yet, although that's right around the corner. They're still working out their medical licenses, sorting them out. And uh, the way the legislation read is that there would be a year uh, from the time the license was awarded to the time you opened. And that is just not enough time. I've been working on one up in Massachusetts since 2018. We're getting close to opening in a month. So um, there's a lot of back and forth between the uh, regulators in Missouri and the license holders, they've been awarded licenses in the Missouri, state of Missouri saying, hey, you know, if you're not going to be open, you need to surrender your license. So um, a lot of good work for the lawyers down there trying to keep those licenses intact and trying to show that they're making enough progress on their cultivations, build-outs, that uh, they can keep their licenses. So the state is being somewhat flexible, but still people are surrendering their licenses. Well, you know, Jim in Illinois... It's a six-month window. They tell you you have to be up and operating within six months of getting your license. However, you can apply for one six-month extension for good cause shown. So I, I expect that to be uh, just as crazy with everybody trying to rush and run and, and, and get their get their facilities up and operating within a short period of time. Um, it, it's going to be crazy. And it's the, it's the other hand of the government that's crossing these problems because, you know, there's delays in getting building permits. There's delays in inspections. So, so there's, these all snowball into delays on getting open. So it's not necessarily the award, the license holder who can't get open in a year. If the government didn't have other roadblocks in the way, they'd get open as fast as they could. But, um, you know, we had a situation on with a client right now where the whole project is stopped until the sprinkler system's put in. Well, anyone who's ever done commercial buildings, you know, in a municipality knows that you ultimately wind up fighting City Hall somewhere along the way, but it, it is very, very frustrating. Although I will note that I just saw a story that said that in June of this year, uh, Missouri set a record with their medical cannabis sales, uh, approximately $16.4 million, um, which probably seems like a small number for, uh, you know, people of, of states that have programs that have been operating for a long time. Uh, but, you know, for Missouri, that seems like, a, you know, a hugely large number uh, to think that after all this time, Missouri, of all places, has uh, medical cannabis that's up and operating and enough people participating in the program that they've generated that level of sales, you know, over a one-month period. So I'm very happy for Missouri. I'm very happy for uh, for my friends who are down there getting to take advantage of it and uh, for the whole thing. And hopefully they'll work out the rest of their problems because they still do have quite a few problems in terms of getting their licenses out. Uh, but at least they're on their way. Yeah, I don't have any statistics today, but the um, proportion of the population that's eligible for a medical marijuana card is significantly higher in Missouri. There's a lot of obesity. There's a lot of heavy tobacco smoking, a lot of uh, good, really good food, but uh, good food that's high in saturated fats. So um, Missouri has a higher um, issues, higher issues with health than, than other states like us skinny people here in Colorado. Uh-huh, of course. 
well, I'm not touching that issue with a 10-foot pole. We'll just let that one slide. But I hear what you're saying, um, you know, and uh, everybody's got their reasons for doing what they do. Um, well, I think we're getting close to the end of the show. Uh, is there anything else, Jim, you wanted to touch on today? No, I think we're good. Um, I say we're very excited about having live music back and lots of shows. There's a show every night of the week at, at Red Rocks, so... Uh, Dark Star Orchestra just played up there Sunday night. I wasn't able to go, but a uh, lot, lot going on out here. Uh, a new artist that I, I, my wife really likes, uh, Island Jewel. We're going to see her on August 5th at a park here in Denver. So check out Island Jewel. She's kind of got a, a bluesy, swanky kind of uh, just to her songs that she writes. Um, I think the uh, people listening to the show would like her music. Island Jewel. Very good. Thank you, and we will talk with you soon. And Rob, any last words? Yeah, I just want to give a shout-out to our producer, Dan Humiston, for going out to see Carl D. the other night. It's the first time he'd ever see Denzen play. So I saw him with Tiny Universe. So, uh, you know, Dan, it's great seeing you out there seeing some live music. And if you get a chance, go back and listen to some of Carl D.'s early stuff back when he was um, part of um, uh, the Great Boy All-Stars. So, you know, you want to see Carl D. kind of doing some of his finest work when he was part of a band. Very good. And I will certainly echo that sentiment that being a huge Carl Dennison fan myself, it's always nice to know that we have like-minded producers. So uh, shout out to Dan for uh, you know being musically on top of that one. Uh, and to all of our listeners, as always, thank you. This was a fun show for us today. Uh, we had a chance to talk and share some of our thoughts with everyone. We hope you liked it. Uh, some very interesting topics were discussed, uh, good stuff and worth listening to. Uh, everybody have a great week. We will look forward to talking to you next time, and please enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Bye-bye. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on Podcon X. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at thetalkinghedgepodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out.